Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast features John Ronson at Washington County's R.H. Stafford Library. John Ronson is among Britain's most prolific journalists and documentarians and a household name throughout that country. He first came to the attention of most Americans with the publication of Them, Adventurers and Extremists in 2001, and the even more successful The Men Who Stared Goats in 2004. In the latter, Ronson investigated the strange, but true experiments conducted until just recently by a secret department within the U.S. Army. It was the basis for a 2009 movie of the same name starring and produced by George Clooney. Ronson's most recent book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, offers a witty but eye-opening look at the widespread but little-studied social phenomenon of public shaming. As a warning, this podcast contains explicit language throughout and may not be appropriate for children. Additionally, John Ronson makes use of slides to display tweets in his discussion, which I will read aloud when they appear. These slides can be found at clubbook.org slash podcasts. And now, John Ronson. Thank you. Hi, thank you for coming. Thank you. This is the first time I, I, I was actually in St. Paul once before uh, for my book, Them. Um, I was with um, the Ku Klux Klan uh, in St. Paul. I was with a politically correct faction of the Ku Klux Klan from Harrison, Arkansas, uh, who had banned, um, they banned the, the, the robes and they banned the hoods and they banned the N-word and they banned the cross burnings. Uh, they banned all the things that were kind of fun about being in the Ku Klux Klan. Um, uh, and uh, in fact, the, the, when I, I went, they only allowed one cross burning a year. And I, it was when I was there. And they were so rusty when it came to cross burnings. They were all standing around the cross and they couldn't remember whether to soak it in kerosene and then raise it or raise it and then soak it. And they were all standing around kind of scratching their heads. And then Tom, their leader, came over and said, um, Tom, do we raise it and then soak it or do we soak it? And he said, you, you soak it and then raise it. How are you going to soak it once you've raised it? And then he kind of looked at me as if to say, you know, I'm sorry that my members are such idiots. Um, <laughs> and so he, they, they banned all the things that were kind of presumably fun about being in the Ku Klux Klan and, and replaced those things with... Um, personality skills seminars where he erected a marquee in his garden and all the clansmen had to fill out multiple choice questionnaires uh, about what strengths and weaknesses most applied to them. And I remember one of them was mixes easily, which, you know, normally would be a strength, but for the clan it's kind of a weakness. And uh, anyway, so then they decided to have a rally in St. Paul. Um, and it was like a 17 hour drive from Harrison, Arkansas, and I drove all the way with them. Uh, I remember at one point, um, at one point, uh, Tom, about sort of 10 hours into the journey, turned to me and said, uh, can I ask you a question? And I said, yeah. And he said, do you think I'm weird? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I, th I feel you're in a transitional phase between weird and not weird. Um, <laughs> And then we stopped off at a hotel and I, and I, and I, I turned up and I uh, turned on the TV and Sesame Street was on and I burst into tears. Cause obviously being with the clan that long, it had this, like, these are my big birds, my people, my people. And then we got to St. Paul and I went to a local radio station with the clan. Um, and, uh, and afterwards, the woman who was interviewing them uh, said to me, so, you, so, so are you in the clan? 
And I said, no. And she said, yeah, I thought you didn't strike me as a clansman. <laughs> um, and then it was the day of the rally, which was somewhere in St. Paul, I can't remember where, but what I do remember was that they erected this huge space between the clan and the protesters. There was about 10 members of the clan and the audience comprised of about six protesters who were about a mile away across the parking lot to stop violence. And, uh, and Tom said something like, you know, we're not here to hate, you know, we're a new clan. We're not here to hate, we're here to love. We love you. And then there was this long silence and like a mile away across the parking lot, somebody shouted, Fuck you! <laughs> so that's my memories of St. Paul. Um, and anyway, thank you very much for, for coming. This is very kind of you. Uh, I'm going to tell you um, the worst thing that I ever did. Uh, it was at a restaurant in a country house hotel. Um, and my wife had booked it as a special occasion. Uh, even though my wife knows I don't enjoy fancy meals. And she always picks terrible special occasions for me, my wife. Like the time, uh, as a special surprise treat, she booked me a spa weekend, <laughs> even though she knows I don't like being touched. Um, which, remember that during the signing session. Um, I, I don't mind being touched. Uh, and I was... Um, and the masseur was masseuring me, massaging me. And I was trying to make conversation, but it was awkward. And, uh, and I said to her, I was just trying to think of something to say, I said, you know, my memory, my memory is just terrible. I can't remember anything about my childhood. It's all gone. And she said, well, most people, you know, she was massaging me, most people who don't remember anything about their childhood, when they recover their lost memory, it turns out that they were sexually abused <laughs> by their parents. So I said, well, I'd remember that. <laughs> Anyway, so we were having dinner in this restaurant in this country house hotel and, uh, my, uh, and the soup took ages to arrive. It took 45 minutes to arrive. So I began to eat it ravenously and Elaine said, John! I said, what? And she said, see that girl on the next table? And there was a girl about 14 uh, sitting with her parents. And Elaine said, I just saw her mimic the way you ate your soup. <laughs> um, I said, really? And she said, spoiled rich cow. <laughs> she did this impersonation of her parents of someone eating soup disgustingly, and I know it was an impersonation of you because you are eating your soup <laughs> disgustingly. So I said, oh, so what? She's only 14 or something. How did her parents respond? And she said, they smiled. And I said, I'm going to the toilet. <laughs> so I went to the toilet, and as I came back, I saw the girl walking towards me on her way to the toilet. And it was just me and her alone in this grand hallway. And I thought, she's so rude. And the terrible thing is she will never know that I know she mimicked me. And then I thought, I've got to say something to her. <laughs> Believe me, it's worse than you think. Uh, <laughs> But what? You know, I, maybe I should be condescending. Like, it's not nice to grotesquely mime the way somebody older than you eats their soup. Or maybe I should be insulting. Like, I see you hunched over your food, but I don't mimic you. Uh, I thought, no, that's too much. And then suddenly, I knew exactly what to do. I thought, it's simple, but devastating. I will catch her eye and silently do an impersonation of somebody eating soup disgustingly. <laughs> I will mimic her, mimic... I should tell you that all of this took place in the space of one and a half seconds. I'm, I'm slowing it down for like a Nicholson Baker novel or, or like Proust. Yeah, think of this as being, think of this as being like Proust. <laughs> yeah, it's like Proust. Um, I thought not a word will pass between us but she'll know she's been caught out. And now we're six feet apart from each other and I'm suddenly feeling nervous about the whole thing because it's combative and I'm not usually a combative person. But I thought, do it, John. If you don't, you'll regret it. <laughs> and so I did. My heart was racing, but still I made it look casual. I looked her in the eye 
opened my mouth and began to rhythmically move my hand up and down, up and down towards my open mouth, clenched as if holding a soup spoon, just up and down. And the girl looked startled and I thought, this is withering. And then I understood <laughs> that my impersonation of somebody eating their soup ravenously is identical to the way people mime blowjobs. <laughs> I, was a, I should probably show you what it looked like, right? I, mean, I, I feel it's important to this. So I kind of shot a sort of defiant look. Yeah. And then I went. <laughs> and I, then I hurried back to the table. And my wife said, you look as white as a sheet. And I said, can we get the bill? Anyway, the moral of that story, and I realise that coming up with a moral to that story is a bit of a stretch, but the moral to that story is shame internalised leads to horror, whereas shame let out leads to a funny story. And also to horror. I think the reason why I bring this up is because in the early days of Twitter, it was like a place for radical de-shaming. People would admit these hitherto shameful secrets about themselves and other people would say, oh my God, I'm exactly the same. And it was like a kind of, I don't know, was anybody on Twitter back in about 2008, 2009, right? It was a, it was a nice place to be, right? And also you would say, I have this shameful secret about myself. And people would say, oh my God, I'm exactly the same. And people would laugh and it was unselfconscious. There was even a phrase back then, Facebook is where you lie to your friends. Twitter is where you tell the truth to strangers. Um, you know, a couple of nights on this speaking tour, a few people enjoying the Q&A have said, have kind of said sort of derisory things about Twitter, it's just a toy, you know, I'm not on Twitter, this speech isn't, this talk isn't for me. But I want to try and explain that Twitter and social media in general is, is really an incredibly significant and important development in human communication. It's, it's the biggest development since the printing press, you know, because silenced people suddenly have a voice and they're finding their voice to be eloquent and funny. And it's, a, it's really a wonderful place to be. And then it really blew up in our faces. And I'm going to tell the story as to why I think that happened. Uh, it started because we suddenly, we realised we had power. Silence people had power. If a right-wing columnist wrote a racist or a homophobic column, we, we could get them. We could get them with a weapon that they didn't understand, but we did, a social media shaming. We began to attack people who were misusing their privilege. Um, in my new book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, I write about one of these shamings. I think it, this was when it began to, 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 to turn, but nobody really realised this at the time. I write about a pop science author called Joan Alera, um, who had been caught uh, faking Bob Dylan quotes in a book. He faked Bob Dylan quotes because the faked quotes made his book, you know, cleaner and better and so on. So it was about, the book was about creativity and, and he quoted Bob Dylan as saying, creativity is a hard thing to describe. It's just the sense that you've got something to say. And one of Jonah's readers, a blogger named Michael Moynihan, a journalist, you know, read this and thought, when the fuck was Bob Dylan ever that helpful? <laughs> if anything, this sounds like Jonah Lehrer. So he approached Jonah Lehrer and, and the first two chapters of my book are this, I think it's the fa my favourite writing that I've ever done. It's the story of the collision between these two men. You know, this, this drama between these two men when first Jonah thought he could bluff his way out of it and then Jonah realised he couldn't and he was trapped and he just collapsed and all his kind of preppy, you know, armour just faded away and he was just a child, you know, just please, please, just phoning Michael 25 times a day, please. It was the, the terror of being found out. And for Michael, it was the terror of finding somebody out. But anyway, he was found out and disgraced and he had the opportunity to make a public apology this was like the most important speech of his life. 
Uh, and the public apology was going to take place at a journalist's foundation. It was going to be live streamed. But unbeknownst to Jonah, the foundation had decided to erect a giant screen live Twitter feed right next to his head. So anybody tweeting from home could, could you know, could, could broadcast their ongoing reaction to Jonah's pleas for forgiveness. And they would appear in real time in huge letters. And another screen was right in Jonah's eyeline. So while Jonah was begging for his life, he was reading what people were saying about this in real time. I've got a very short clip of that. If we are not prepared to deal with our mistakes, if we try to hide them away, as I did, then any error can become a catastrophe. This is what happened to the FBI forensics lab. And the tweets that were cascading into Jonah's eyeline were saying things like, Jonah Lehrer boring us into forgiving him. And Jonah Lehrer is just a frigging sociopath. And Jonah Lehrer has not proven he is capable of feeling shame. I've thought a lot about those last two, sociopath and not capable of feeling shame. You know, what, what's the purpose of those last two? It's to, it's to dehumanise him, right? You know, because we want to destroy people and not feel bad. So we dehumanise them, we call them a sociopath. You know, what's, is a, you know, I write about this in my book, The Psychopath Test. You know, what's more dehumanising than calling somebody a sociopath? Um, imagine if that was an actual court and the murderer is in the dock pleading for his life and the jury's yelling out, bored, sociopath, you know, we would think that was terrible. But yet, give us justice, give us the power, and that's what we do. Because I think we've started to fall in love with it too much. We fell in love with attacking people who were misusing their privilege so much that we started really letting our standards slip, attacking people who were misusing their privilege only if you half closed your eyes. And into this hothouse atmosphere stumbled an unsuspecting woman who I've since become friends with. And I've, I've had an awful lot of criticism over the last couple of weeks. I'm feeling slightly beleaguered. Um, for, um, one of the things that people are most critical of is, is, is me defending the woman whose story I'm about to tell you before we open it up for questions. Um, but I've got to say, I think I'm right. <laughs> uh, let's see what you think at the end of it. I really think I'm right. And I'm not a crazy person. And I think I'm right. This woman is called Justine Sacco. She had 170 Twitter followers. And she would tweet little acerbic jokes to her followers. Like this one as she was travelling from New York to London. Weird German dude. You're in first class. It's 2014. Get some deodorant. Inner monologue as I inhale B.O. Thank God for pharmaceuticals. Okay, so then she gets to London and she's got a little time to wait before the next leg of her journey, which is from Heathrow to Cape Town. And she tweets, Going to Africa. Hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding. I'm white. So she chuckles to herself and presses send and gets no replies because she's only got 170 Twitter followers and nobody ever replies to any of her jokes. Still, she feels that sad feeling that we all feel when the internet doesn't congratulate us for being funny. Uh, gets on the plane, turns off her phone, sleeps for 11 hours, lands, turns on her phone, straight away there's a message from somebody she hasn't spoken to since high school that says, I am so sorry to see what's happening to you. And then another message from my best friend, you need to phone me now. You are the worldwide number one trending topic on Twitter. So first there were the philanthropists. If Justine Sacco's unfortunate words about AIDS bother you, join me in supporting CARE's work in Africa. Another reads, in light of Justine Sacco's disgusting racist tweet, I'm donating to CARE today. I am donating to CARE today. Then came the beyond horrified. Really have no words for that horribly disgusting racist tweet from Justine Sacco. I am beyond horrified. I am beyond horrified. Was anybody on Twitter that night? Yeah, two, any more? Three, four, five, six. 
Did Justine Sacco's tweet overwhelm your timeline that night? Yeah, yeah. Everybody, m while she slept, everybody read this tweet. Millions and millions of people. And I thought, as I lay in bed in London, I thought what everybody thought that night, which was, wow, somebody's fucked. <laughs> and, and then I thought, I'm not sure that was intended to be a racist joke. Maybe that was somebody gleefully mocking privilege. Maybe that was like somebody mocking privilege as opposed to somebody gleefully flaunting their privilege. You know, there is a tradition of this. Randy Newman made a, did a lot of songs along these lines. So South Park, Colbert, maybe the only difference between Justin Sacco and those people was that she was bad at it. And in fact, when I did meet her a couple of weeks later, that's exactly how she described the joke to me. I mean, she was crushed. She barely stopped crying for three weeks. She said, living in America puts us in a bit of a bubble when it comes to what's going on in the third world. I was making fun of that bubble. But if anybody was cognizant of those nuances, nobody was letting on. In fact, um, a woman called Helen Lewis reviewed my book for The New Statesman in England the other week, and she wrote in her review that she was on Twitter that night, and she wrote, I'm not sure that that joke was supposed to be racist, and she said straight away she got a kind of ferocity of, well, you're just a privileged bitch too. And she said to her shame, she shut up. Anyway, then came the trolls. Oh no, then came the calls for her to be fired. If I can just get Justine Sacco fired, my day would have been well spent. Good luck with the job hunt in the new year. Hashtag getting fired. Another reads, last tweet of your career. Hashtag sorry, not sorry. Then came corporations trying to sell their products on the back of Justine's destruction. This tweet is from GoGo. Next time you plan to tweet something stupid before you take off, make sure you are getting on a GoGo flight. Then came the trolls. One Twitter user says, I'm actually kind of hoping Justine Sacco gets AIDS. LOL. Somebody else that night wrote, um, somebody HIV positive should rape this bitch and then we'll find out if her skin colour protects her from AIDS. Nobody went after that person. I think we can all agree that's a worse tweet. <laughs> right? Uh, worse than hers. We were so excited about destroying Justine Sacco that we couldn't handle destroying somebody who was, who was inappropriately destroying Justine Sacco. We're, very, we're simple folk when it comes to our shamings. This tweet reads, All I want for Christmas is to see Justine Sacco's face when her plane lands and she checks her inbox voicemail. Hashtag fired. And another says, Oh man, Justine Sacco is going to have the most painful phone-turning-on moment ever when her plane lands. You know, these aren't trolls. These aren't trolls. This is, this is nice people like us. And then her employers. This is an outrageous, offensive comment. Employee in question, currently unreachable on an international flight, and that's when the anger turned to excitement. It is kind of wild to see someone self-destruct without them even being aware of it. Hashtag has Justine landed yet? Another reads, Seriously, I just want to go home to go to bed, but everyone at the bar is so into hashtag has Justine landed yet, can't even look away, can't leave. And another, hashtag has Justine landed yet may be the best thing to happen to my Friday night. We were about to watch this Justine Sacco bitch get fired in real time before she even knows she's being fired. How does it feel to be fired for Christmas? The furore over her tweet had become not just an ideological crusade against her perceived bigotry, but also a form of idle entertainment. Her complete ignorance of her predicament for those 11 hours led the episode dramatic irony and a pleasing narrative arc. As her flight traversed the length of Africa, a hashtag began to trend worldwide. Has Justine landed yet? Somebody worked out exactly what plane she was on so everybody could watch the progress on a flight tracker website. This Twitter user asks, Right? Is there no one in Cape Town going to the airport to tweet her arrival? Come on, Twitter. I'd like pictures. Hashtag has Justine landed yet. Guess what? Yes, there was. Yup. Justine Sacco has in fact landed at Cape Town International. 
she's decided to wear sunnies as a disguise. You know, in my book, what I'm hoping, and I think this really does work in my book, um, and it's the thing that I like most about it, is that you can really feel the anxiety. Lots of people have said to me they felt dread reading my book, like watching a horror movie. And that was intended. I wanted people to feel the agony of what it feels like to be destroyed by nice people like us. Um, you know, your heart races as you read this book. It's an anxiety-inducing book. Justine um, deleted her, the joke and her accounts, but it was way too late. As somebody wrote, sorry, Justine Sacco, your tweet lives on forever. And I met her a couple of weeks later and she said, I cried out my body weight in the first 24 hours. It was incredibly traumatic. You don't sleep. You wake up in the middle of the night forgetting where you are and who you are. She released an apology statement and cut short her vacation. Workers were threatening to strike at the hotel she'd booked if she showed up. She was told that nobody could guarantee her safety. As she told me all of this, she started to cry and I kind of felt awkward sitting there watching somebody cry. So I tried to say something to improve the mood. I said, sometimes things need to reach a brutal nadir before people see sense. And she said, wow, of all the things I could have been in society's collective consciousness, I never thought I would end up a brutal nadir. Anyway, um, we said our goodbyes and met sporadically over the next few months. Um, I also um, met the man who had started the campaign against her. He was a Gorka journalist called Sam Biddle. And he'd, somebody had sent him the tweet and then he retweeted it to his 15,000 followers. And I asked him how that felt and he said it felt delicious. And then I asked him how he imagined Justine was. And he said, I'm sure she's fine. Because we want to destroy people and not feel bad about it. And if we can't dehumanise them, we just assume she's fine. But really, she wasn't fine. She was broken. Um, I wrote in my notepad at the time, you know, over the years, I've sat across tables from a lot of people whose lives have been destroyed. But usually the people doing the destroying are like way over there. They're the military or the government or big business, or the pharmaceutical industry. Justine Sacco felt like the first person I'd ever sat across a table from who had been destroyed by us. Anyway, I met her. I talked to her one last time a couple of months ago. I've spoken to her since, but a few months ago I told her that the New York Times <laughs> was going to be um, extracting my book and they were going to use her story and would she like to meet me just one last time to update me on her life? And she said, no way. She said, I finally got a new job after a year and anything that puts the spotlight on me is a negative. And I wrote at the time that it felt like a profound reversal when I first met Justine, she'd felt compelled to tell the tens of thousands of people who tore her apart how they had wronged her. But maybe she now understood that her shaming wasn't really about her at all. Social media is just perfectly designed to manipulate our desire for approval. It's like a mutual approval machine. We surround ourselves with people who feel the same way we do, and we just approve each other. It's like mutual grooming. Justine's tormentors were instantly congratulated as they took her down, bit by bit, so they continued to do so. Their motivation was much the same as Justine's, a bid for the attention of strangers as she milled about Heathrow, hoping to amuse people she couldn't see. I should say, since, you know, for 30 years I've been writing about abuses of power. That's basically, I try and write funny stories about abuses of power, about powerful people, um, becoming absurd and dictatorial and I've been going around the world for 20 years telling these stories and when I'm talking about like the pharmaceutical industry or big business everybody agrees with me everybody says I'm great the first time and I've been on the road for six weeks now the first time I say you know what the crazy people it's us now and I've had people asking me if I'm a racist too you know, I've had, I've had some, you know, this has been a kind of battering experience. A lot of people out there want me to apologise and withdraw the book, which I'm not going to do, because I think I'm right. You know, for a while with this book, 
I was wondering, so what am I against? You know, because I was sitting alone in a room writing this book, and I know that my books become bestsellers, and I know that they go out into the world and people, you know, you forget that when you're alone in a room writing a book. You feel like an idiot who thinks he can write books. But actually, I knew that people do take my books seriously. And so I had to think to myself, oh my God, you know, what am I for? What am I against? And I realised, you know, I'm not against um, satire. I'm not against criticism. I'm not against investigative journalism. I'm not against citizen journalism. I'm not against curiosity. I love curiosity. You know, to highlight other people's flaws can be incredibly important. You know, if they're powerful people, then you're highlighting people behaving powerfully at the expense of other people. And other people's flaws are de-demonising. It makes us feel empathetic. Um, so I'm not against that. What I'm against is the disproportionate punishment of people who did almost nothing wrong. And that's what people are just leaping to. And I had a... Um, I had a conversation with a child therapist the other day. And this is another reason, if any of you in the audience think this isn't an important story, maybe this will change your minds. Um, this child therapist said to me that pretty much every child who comes to her damaged now is damaged because of something that happens on social media. You know, we've sleepwalked into creating a surveillance society and it's way more damaging than the one we are sort of half scared about with the NSA. They're not going to get us, we're going to get us. And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for John Ronson and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if there are many people who can endure a public shaming. You know, once in a while people can, but it's really hard, you know, a shaming is agony. I had a shaming tonight, a big one. I was publicly shamed in a big way tonight on my way here. Uh, there was a line that I cut from the book because it was, um, very easy to misconstrue. And somebody got hold of an early draft of the book and tweeted the line. And, you know, it's all over Twitter right now. Um, and believe me, it was, it's agony. You know, I was, I was shaking. I felt like I'd been hit by lightning. Um, you said that you're a satirist. And, you know, this is, you know, I'm, I think it's great that, you know, I am a believer in, in, for want of a better phrase, political correctness. You know, I understand the power of language. But what, and I, you know, and I'm not advocating people being offensive to each other, but, but a byproduct of all of this is that somebody said to me the other day, you know, with social media, I feel like I am tiptoeing around an angry, unbalanced parent who might strike out at any moment. And it's terrifying. It is. It's like having an evil stepmother. And, um, and it's chilling ideas. It's chilling comedy. It's chilling journalism. It's chilling thought. You know, I say in this book that we've created a world where the smartest way to survive is to be bland or be silent. And it's so ironic because, because um, the whole point about social media was that it was giving a voice to the voiceless. And now the best way to survive it is to be voiceless. Our next question is whether or not John Ronson's interactions with social media have changed after writing this book. I tell you what, I'm being that totally honest here. I'm glad it's not being podcasted. Um, I, I'm f I am from the left. Uh, you know, I've always been from the left. I'm a left-wing person. This book has really made me hate some people from the left. Um, you know, there's another story in this book about a version, like somebody similar to, to Justine, um, who um, got attacked by the right. She made a joke that landed badly that was to do with, with uh, Arlington Cemetery, with the war dead. And when my book came out, I was following the various like, comments and so on. And the right-wing people who had attacked Lindsay Stone, um, who stayed in for like a year and a half, 
<clears throat> because this joke landed badly and got depressed and anxious and insomnia and so on. And all these people from the right, all these military people were saying, oh my God, I feel bad now. You know, I feel like we've, we've you know, we've, we're really hard on this woman. I feel really guilty now. And all the people on the, you know, the people who attacked Justine Sacco were like, oh, well, maybe John Ronson's racist too. This audience member makes mention of a time when Stephen Colbert made a poorly worded joke that gave birth to the hashtag cancel Colbert. How was he able to come out of that mostly unscathed? Once in a while, you know, I mean, Colbert has a lot of fans. He's got a support network. If you've got a support network, you tend to survive. So, for instance, I mean, I did a talk recently with a woman in London called Caroline Criadon Perez, who got like the worst misogynistic abuse because she was campaigning for more women to be on the British banknotes. Um, and she got rape threats and death threats, and it was horrendous. And I've been with feminists, you know, who have been, you know, in a similar position. A friend of mine called Rebecca Watson got the most terrible rape threats, and I was with her when it happened. And it's, and it's frightening and painful and agonising, but at least, if that happens to you, it's kind of black and white, you know? You're being victimised by idiots, and you will always have a support network, like Colbert had a support network. Poor Justine Sacco had nobody. You know, she united everybody from, you know, raper to I'm donating to care. You know, that's a disparate group. Um, so I think that's probably got something to do with it. If you've got a support network, if you've got people on your side. Tonight, this thing that happened to me, like until people started saying, John, don't worry about it, this is insane. I was really anxious. I had to, you know, I had to like sit down in a quiet corner. Another audience member asked John Ronson if he can explain and elaborate on the public shaming he is currently experiencing on Twitter. Well, okay, well, I'll try and explain what happened. <laughs> I, really wish I'd, I really wish I would never have to say this out loud, but I'll, ex I'll explain what happened. There's a line in the book. Okay, can somebody, has somebody got a copy of the book I can, um, I can quote from? Oh, thank you very much. Okay, there's a really interesting conversation I have in the book with a troll called Mercedes. And I'm, I'm asking her why so many um, shamings are so misogynistic. And I thought, she, she, you know, she's a troll and she's female, so I thought this would be an interesting question to ask her. And she said... You know, if you're a man and you're uh, getting shamed, it's like, I'm going to get you fired. You're going to get fired. And if you're a woman and you're getting shamed, it's, I'm going to get you fired, I'm going to get you raped, I'm going to get you murdered, I'm going to have your uterus cut out. You know, women have it much worse than men. So I asked Mercedes why. She said, yeah, it is a bit extreme. 4chan takes the worst thing it can imagine that person going through and shouts for it to happen. <clears throat> um, 4chan aims to degrade the target. And one of the highest degradations for women in our culture is rape. We don't talk about rape of men, so I think it doesn't occur to most people as a male degradation. With men, they talk about getting them fired. In our society, men are supposed to be employed. If they're fired, they lose masculinity points. With Donglegate, which was the shaming she was referring to, she pointlessly robbed that man of his employment. She degraded his masculinity, and so the community responded by degrading her femininity. So then, in, in a very early version of the book, and it's, it's never, it was never published, but in a very early version of the book, I, I muse on this, and I say, <clears throat> effectively, that as a man, I can't think of anything worse than being fired. I, I fear being fired. And I do, I wake up in the middle of the night afraid of being fired. And the point I was trying to make was, oh my God, you know, this fear, this kind of irrational fear I have of being fired, where I wake up in the middle of the night and have this fear. It, do women have that about rape? And, it, and I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't I'd drawn that equivalence before. So that was the line. So I put it into the book, and then it was in a very, very early you know, galley that was not intended for quotation, you know, because galleys aren't. And, um, and a few people said to me, you know, do you realise there's a line in your book that's going to get you publicly shamed? And I was like, what? And she said, you know, it looks like you're comparing being fired to being raped. And I was like, no, I'm not. And they're like, no, you are. So that's how it comes over. So a few people, two or three people said it to me, so I cut it from the book, and then that was it. Um, anyway, this evening, somebody on Twitter suddenly posted this, like, oh my God, 
look at this vile man, and it just went like lightning, you know. John Ronson, you know, another reason to hate John Ronson, he thinks that being fired is, is worse than being raped. Um, so that's how, it, that's how it turned, and it was really, it was really upsetting, if I'm being honest. I wish I could be funny about it. But still, they went for me. I was a blank canvas for which other people can put their ideology onto. You know, that's what I was just then. And, and it was, you know, it was very upsetting and painful. You know, it snaked its way into me and made me feel anxious, you know. I was, I was, I was regretting the fact that my Xanax were at the hotel, and I, which is in Minneapolis, and I'm in St. Paul, so my Xanax are in the Twin City. Um, so, you know, I was, I was ruining that. Um, you know, um, <clears throat> after my book was extracted in the New York Times, this happened then. And people were like, um, you know, what racist is John Ronson going to be putting his cape on for next? And I didn't reply to anybody. Um, but somebody, somebody said, why isn't John Ronson replying to any of us? And somebody else said, John Ronson only replies to men. <laughs> I thought, God, if you knew me, I'm like, I'm like a eunuch from Game of Thrones. And uh, I could not be more sexless. Um, <laughs> This audience member claims that as a reader, it is often hard to tell what side John Ronson is on when telling a story, because he is so empathetic to both perspectives. Well, well, ironically, I mean, this book is more polemical than normal, but the polemic that I'm striving for is, is for people to be more empathetic. You know, I, this, this whole book is really, when you distill this book, it's like we have lost our capacity for empathy on the internet, and it's incredibly damaging. Um, there's a story in my book where I talk about a man <clears throat> in Texas who had to walk up and down a sidewalk with a placard that said, I killed two people while driving drunk. He said, everybody who stopped their car was like, oh, you poor thing, things will be okay. And that's what saved him. The compassion of strangers is what saved him. You know, if we are serious about making the world a better place, that's what does it. On the internet, nobody was saying to Justine, things will be okay. Oh, you poor thing. And in fact, tonight, when people started saying to me, after like an hour of like, John Ronson's a vile human being, people started saying things would be okay. That's, I relaxed and I felt okay again. Um, so this whole polemic is about, you know, reminding people that we are dimensional. This question is about what kind of person can survive a public shaming and how. It tends to be people either who have a support network. There's a lovely story in my book about a... Um, a man called Max Mosley, um, who was a, his father. I say lovely, and I'm about to tell you what happens. Uh, I do have a strange, you know, notion of what lovely means. It's usually to do with like narrative beats and clever words. <laughs> um, uh, Max's father was a fascist leader uh, in the 1930s. Very, very famous British fascist, friends with Hitler and Mussolini. Uh, anyway, years later, a few years ago, Max, um, who's managed to have a good career, was publicly shamed in the tabloids for, um, for being part of what the tabloids called a sick Nazi orgy, like an S&M orgy. Anyway, to cut a long story short, Max sued them because the orgy might have been German-tinged, but it wasn't Nazi-themed. <laughs> These are like generic German uniforms. As Max pointed out in court, you know, it's, he's very posh, Max. As he pointed out in court, if, I, you know, if, we wanted, uh, if we wanted Nazi clothes, we could have easily got one from a costumier. <laughs> and, uh, I, and I pondered for ages, how come Max survived with such a plum? Like, you know, he got no shame at all. Everybody was on his side. And the conclusion I came to, it's a kind of nihilistic conclusion. It's that nobody cares. Like, if you're a man in a sex scandal, nobody cares. Because we are the ones with power now. Social media are the ones with power now. And we have determined that a, that a man in a consensual sex scandal, nobody cares. What matters is misuse of privilege, which, of course, is a better thing to be upset about. But nonetheless, you know, there's a lot of collateral damage. One audience member asks, what's the line between social justice and public shaming? When is it okay to jump on a trending hashtag? I've got to say, I find it difficult to jump on any hashtag now, after all of this, because once you've visited the slaughterhouse, it's, it's really hard to keep ordering the steak. Um, 
I, I've always considered myself a social justice person, which is why I've been so, which is why I so wanted to tell Justine's story. I mean, there's a bit of a misconception. I'm, and I'm sounding slightly defensive here because all these things have been happening to me the last few weeks and I'm just like, you're like all oh, my therapist. Um, <laughs> But the reason why I wanted to tell Justine's story wasn't so much because I identified with Justine, which, which I do, but really because I identified with the people who tore her apart. I thought, God, this was us. This was social justice people. And I still consider myself a, justice, a social justice person, but I'm a lot more wary of them now, hell of a lot warier now. Because, you know, I, I saw real cruelty with those people. Um, you know, disproportionate punishment, stripping things of their nuance and their context. It's so dehumanizing. Our last question of the night comes from a man wondering if public shaming is the same across the world, or are there some cultures that are more unforgiving? I've got to say, my, 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 my sort of, you know, my, my gut instinct about that, I mean, I live in America and, and love America. I've been living here for three years and I love America. Um, I say as a little caveat. Um, <laughs> I think America is, is a little bit worse, a little bit less forgiving, which is ironic because, you know, built into the American, you know, dream is the idea of, you know, final acts and redemption and so on. But I think there's a little bit, it's a little bit harder. And I don't quite know why that is. And it may not be all of America. It may just be like New York. Um, <laughs> but there's definitely a kind of, I've noticed a, a more, like when I give talks about Joan Alera, the, the basic vibe in Britain is, oh, come on, you know, what he did was stupid, but it's hardly the crime of the century. And in New York, the vibe is more, you know, this is unforgivable, you know. And I don't know why that is, but I have noticed it. That's not to say that, you know, in Britain we're all lovely, or, or Australia, but, you know, not by any means. Will I end with my other story? Have people enjoyed this evening and felt it was worthwhile? Thank you. I've got to say, you know, I've been doing this stuff for, for nay on 30 years and I've never done a tour where I've felt embattled. <laughs> but I have a bit on this tour. And I do think it's ironic, you know, it's the first time I ever say, you know, we're the crazy ones. That's when I get embattled. Okay, so I'm going to end with this story and then I will be signing books if people would like them. My eight-year-old son Joel comes into my office to ask me if there is a worse swear word than fuck. No, I say. <laughs> You're lying, he says. There's none worse than fuck, I say. I know you're lying, he says. He leaves the room. On Saturday, I take Joel to Chessington World of Adventures, which is kind of like Six Flags, but just as shit. Um, what a crappy theme park. Nonetheless, we have a wonderful day together. You're a great dad, Joel says as we drive home. And you're a great son, I reply. There is a worse swear word than fuck, isn't there, says Joel. Yes, there is, I say. <laughs> what is it, says Joel. Uh, I say, tell me, says Joel. I swear this is just for me. I will never use it. <laughs> I feel clammy and hemmed in. And you won't tell mum we had this conversation, I say. <laughs> mum will never know, says Joel. I can't tell you, I say. Tell me, says Joel. I can't, I say. Then why did you almost tell me? Joel yells. Because I wasn't thinking responsibly, I yell. I was swept up in the magic of the moment. You have to tell me, Joel says. It's only fair. I look around the car. For some reason, we have an old can of Italian lemonade down on the floor. It's limone, I say. Limone, says Joel. That is the worst swear word of all, I say. Limone. But I'm holding you to your promise that you will never use it. Limone, says Joel. There's nowhere to go after Limone, I say. Limone is the Everest peak of swearing. Joel looks out of the window. You know, I say wisely. Sometimes the mystery is better than the knowing, wouldn't you say? Sometimes the journey is better than the destination. Anyway, don't tell Mum. We reach the house, Joel rushes inside. Mum, he yells. 
Dad just told me the worst swear word of all. I know what it is, Lamone. My wife, Elaine, appears at the top of the stairs, an inscrutable expression on her face. I shrug anxiously. A month passes. We go for a weekend away. At the hotel, a boy on a tricycle crashes into Joel. Lamone. <laughs> Another month passes. Joel has a friend round for a sleepover. At 11 o'clock, I hear them talking. They're saying, Lamone. <laughs> I feel terrible about this, I say to Elaine. I've tricked my own son. I'm going to tell him that Lamone isn't a swear word and is in fact the Italian word for lemon. I'm going to tell him the actual worst swear word in the world. You are not, says Elaine. I'd rather he was foul-mouthed and accurate than see him like this, <laughs> I say. And all because of my stupid, stupid slip of the tongue in the car on the way back from Chessington World of Adventures. You are not going to tell Joel the worst swear word in the world, Elaine yells. And so I don't. Today, Joel comes into my office. Hi, he says. Hi, I say. Anyway, I'll see you later, says Joel. He goes to leave. Then he turns around. Oh, he says, cunt. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's it from our RH Stafford Library event with John Ronson in Washington County. Catch our next Club Book event with Garth Stein at 7 p.m. Monday, April 20th at Dakota County's Galaxy Library in Apple Valley. Literary dynamo Garth Stein is best known by many for 2008's The Art of Racing in the Rain, a runaway hit that spent a consecutive 150 weeks on the New York Times bestsellers list. His newest book, A Sudden Light, is a masterful blend of ghost tale and coming-of-age story centered around a 14-year-old desperate to uncover the dark secrets hidden in his ancestral estate. Meet Garth Stein, get your questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle at clubbookmn. And if you enjoyed these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just made too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, the St. Paul Hotel, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.